Good morning. And grace and peace to you. Don, you did about as good a job as you could. I know that sometimes the song doesn't fit the topic exactly right. I got to sing one of my favorite songs. I shall know him. Very few persons in the Bible are described as to physical appearance. I don't know if you ever reflected on that or not. Sarah was said to be very beautiful. Saul was tall and handsome. David was ruddy. And Elijah was hairy. I don't know if you want to be remembered for that or not, you know? And then we have the description of Absalom and Samson's hair. And all you ladies can just be jealous. Because it must have been beautiful. A few others. We have some limited physical description, but there's not an emphasis on the outward looks of people. And we might ask the question, why? And I think what to ask it is to answer it, understanding God. He is mostly concerned about our inner looks, isn't he? What does my heart look like on the inside? What kind of person am I on the inside? What is my character? What are my loves and my values? And then he looks at our life and what we do and how we live. These are the things that matter most to God. In the New Testament, we have absolutely no physical description of our Savior Jesus. None whatsoever. Interesting. We don't know how tall he was, what kind of build he had, color of his eyes, his hair, his looks. You know, we might speculate, knowing it was a Jew, but still, we don't know. Isaiah 53, 2, has perhaps the only indication of Jesus' outward appearance. And it's still very nebulous. For he grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of parched ground, he has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. Uh, Shirley and I were talking about this. And, uh, she was saying, well, you know, there just wasn't anything really there to uh, attract us to him. He was just average Joe. Or looking at the fact he was a Jew, he was just an average Jacob, you know? He was just an average person. And you've probably seen depictions. I don't know if we could ever say it's a picture. There's a picture of Jesus, you know? Uh, and we might say that uh, because nobody knows what he looked like. Nobody ever took a photograph Never took, got the cell phone out and said, wait a minute, Lord, let me get a couple here. Let me get a selfie with you. 
just right here, you know, right by the well. That'd be a good one. Didn't happen. Uh, you may, might be familiar, probably are familiar, with two of the most famous paintings that try to depict our Lord. One was by a fellow by the name of Werner Salman. Uh, just has kind of the picture of the, from the shoulders up of the Lord. He's kind of looking off to one side. You might have that picture painting in your house. And then there's the one, the famous one by Heinrich Hoffman of him praying in Gethsemane. By that looks like a stone there with the light coming down. Are either of them correct? Do they depict properly the, the Lord's countenance? We don't know. Probably not. But it doesn't matter. And again, we, uh, we don't want to focus upon the outward appearance. You know, this time of year, we noted this last time, you know, the, the birth of Christ is everywhere. We see pictures and all and remind, reminders. And, you know, it's a good thing that people want to think about Christ. And I thought, you know, when he was a baby in the manger, he just looked like any other baby. There was no halo, folks. There was no halo. Just a little baby wrapped up, you know, like Eli over here, his little thing. He, just, he looked like a baby. When he was 12 years old and he went to the temple, remember that? And he was, disp- well, talking and kind of disputing there with the elders and the scribes. He just looked like any other 12-year-old boy. Yeah, he certainly had a grasp of scripture and a certain presence about him, but he he looked like another 12-year-old. And then for roughly the next 18 years, as a young man growing up, he looked like a carpenter, didn't he? He worked his trade. I think we have to understand that. Making tables and chairs and hoe handles and rake handles and yoke for oxen. Probably did a really good job, too, I think. But he just looked like a carpenter, man, making a living. And then, at age 30, began to teach. And, of course, they called him rabbi, which is right. And there were a lot of other rabbis at the time walking around teaching as well. So he just looked like a rabbi teaching. And so the point we want to make here is that he was just like one of us. I don't want to downplay the fact he was God who became flesh because he was certainly God on the inside. The word of God become flesh, but he became flesh. He just looked like we did. Now he certainly acted and said differently but he just looked like us. Now I want to approach this a little bit from a different perspective now as we consider not, again, the physical appearance because we just don't have that, but to observe Jesus in his life. 
to see what kind of a man he was. What did he look like as he went about? And the first one we look at here is in Matthew 9, 35, beginning. Jesus looked like a man who was concerned about his fellow man. We've all been around people at times that you don't even have to ask them what they're doing. You can just tell by the look on their face or what they're involved with that... Uh, you know, th this is what they are. This is what they're doing. This is what they're into right now. Uh, I didn't uh, uh, approve this with Shirley up front, but she made cookies this past week and nut roll, okay? And when she gets that look on her face, it's time to bake, all right? And she starts to get the ingredients there on the counter and get the recipe cards out and... She's got the face on, the baking face. This is time, the oven's on, and it's time for me to leave the kitchen. <laughs> I got to get out and get in the way. She is a woman doing her baking, you can tell, and you know what I'm talking about. Well, as we look at Jesus here in these various scriptures, we can see the kind of man he was. Let's read this, Matthew 9.35. Jesus was going through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Seeing the people, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. You can see Jesus, he's going about and he's concerned about these people. They have problems and he wants to take care of the problems as best he can. He is a man committed to helping out the people around him. First of all, we note here about sin affecting the whole person and that's what we have here. You know, we have disease and illness, and of course that all came in because of our sin back in the Garden of Eden. You sin, you die. And so that's when all of this started, the uh, aging and the corruption of the body and death. Jesus understands this. He is concerned for their salvation. He's proclaiming the gospel, the gospel of the kingdom. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We read that very early on in the Gospel of Mark. That was his message. There's a new kingdom coming. Repent. But he's also concerned about the human condition here, isn't he? Their diseases. Their illnesses. And he's healing them. Now, I know that you and I can't heal like he did. But we can be concerned about illnesses. We can visit folks in the hospital. We can pray like Mike prayed this morning for folks. And we need to be concerned about people who are ill and sick. Because that's part of life, isn't it? And as we've said before, there's always a spiritual element to someone's being sick. Because they can get so down from their sickness that they can turn away from God. And we don't want that to happen. And so we have to 
encourage them, be with them, however it can be, whatever we can do to help them out in their, in their trouble, in their, in their problem. But then he also saw that many were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. They had no purpose in life. They were just wandering around, if you will, from one thing to another, okay? Well, we'll try this this week, or try this for a year, or do this or that. And they, they didn't know God. They didn't know what life was about. They had no purpose, no good purpose in life. And again, sin will do this to us. Separates us from God, and we end up following, you know, who knows what in life. You know, the alcohol, the drugs, the fun, the pleasure, the money. And we just flit from one thing to another. Jesus understood this. So he's trying to give them hope here. And he says to the disciples, you know, the harvest is plentiful. In other words, there are a lot of people here that needs help. Let's pray for some more helpers here to get out in this harvest and help the folks in need. So, this was Jesus, a man who was concerned about his fellow man, his fellow man in every situation that sin had placed them, and he was doing what he could to help them out. The second thought we have is in uh, Matthew 21. Jesus looked like a man who backed up his words and his beliefs with action. As we sometimes say, he had the courage of his convictions. This is after he had uh, come into, the, into Jerusalem, as we say, the triumphal entry during the last week of his uh, life before the cross. In verse 12 of Matthew 21, And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all those who were buying and selling in the temple, overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a robber's den. Jesus said and taught a lot of things, didn't he? I mean, he covered it all. And we should cover it all as well. You know, as Paul said in one place, I have, I have declared to you, I have not, I've not uh, failed to declare to you the whole counsel of God. Everything you need to hear from God. You know, he talked about God the Father, forgiveness, holy living, righteous living, being honest, relationships, worship, love, discipleship, sin, judgment to come. You know, every, Jesus talked about all those. But he also lived what he taught, didn't he? He was very consistent that way with his life, falling in line with what he taught. And this is oftentimes where we fail. We know the truth. We might even teach the truth. But when it comes to actually doing it, this is where we stumble. And we all do, myself included. Here, we see the indignation on his part. This was his father's house, the temple. And even though, you know, it had been corrupt and the leaders were corrupt, it was still his father's temple. And it had been turned into a cross between a banking center and a county fair. They were selling the animals and they were making money by exchanging 
the common money for the temple money in order to buy the sacrifices, and it was just a horrible mess. And as Jesus sees this, he can't stand it. And he sees that they're violating Scripture. My house is to be a house of prayer, but you've turned it into a house of merchandise, a place to make money. He says it's not going to happen. In one of the Gospels, it says he went and made a whip of cords before he did this. And drove, overturned the tables and drove out the animals and the money changers. And he has the boldness here to speak up for what he knows is right and to do what is right. You know, we look at this and say, well, yeah, we read that. Well, he was the son of God. Yes, but this still took a lot of courage because it was another step toward Golgotha, wasn't it? It, it did not ingratiate himself with the scribes and the high priests there at the temple. Believe me, it did not for him to do that. In another place we read, they, they were saying, by what authority do you do that? Who gave you the right to do this? And so once again, he becomes the outlaw, the renegade, doing these strange things, teaching things that the temple authorities are not teaching. But he does that because he knows it's right and it needs to be done. He looked like a man with the courage of his convictions. I think here we all need to, to just stop and consider Jesus in, in all these scriptures, but like I said, we, most of us know what's right, but then we don't follow through to do what's right, to stand up for what's right, whatever the situation might be. We need to really take this page, as we would say out of Jesus' playbook, to stand up for what we know is right, to speak up, to do the right thing, and just let God take care of it not worry what might be the repercussions, just to stand for what's right. Okay, two more scriptures. Do I need to talk to Helen again about getting out of here? Or no? I don't want to <laughs> Matthew 16. Jesus looked like a man devoted to God and the things of God. Here, this is right after Peter makes the great confession, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Uh, Jesus must be thrilled that this was revealed to him by his father. He says that. Now you know. The crowds didn't know. And, uh, you know, here's, here's, this is just a great moment uh, in Jesus' ministry. And it's actually a great moment for the human race that we actually recognize finally who this man is who's been going about doing good, healing, and teaching. He is the Christ, the promised Christ, the one who's to come for thousands of years, hundreds of years, if not 1,500 years, the promise to Abraham, even clear back in the garden, one who was to crush the serpent's head. 
But then, uh, after the great confession Peter makes, and he says, says something stupid. You know, that's Peter, and that's us, too, you know. Sometimes we're really good, we're right on, and the next breath, it's like, oh, man, why did I say that? Why did I do that? Matthew 16, 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, be raised up on the third day. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Okay, now, Peter has just confessed, this is to Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, this is the Christ, the King. He's over all. Now, Peter's going to presume. You know, if, if this had happened before he came to this knowledge and confessed he was the Christ, you could maybe understand it. But now he's just confessed, this is the Christ, and he's going to take the Christ aside and tell him what's what? You can see how crazy that is. But then what's the response? He turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block to me if you're not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. There's a subtle temptation here. If you think about Jesus' temptation in the wilderness, remember Satan says, I'll show you all the kingdoms of the earth. You bow down and worship me, I'll give them to you. Here's a thought. Jesus could think, now my disciples know I'm the Christ. Now's an opportunity here. I could take the fast track and, you know, just spread the kingdom that way. And we'll just avoid the cross. But he didn't do that, did he? Because he was explaining about having to suffer and die. And that was his father's will. And so the rebuke is strong. In fact, the rebuke is very strong. Yet behind me, Satan. You don't savor the things of God, but the things of men. Wow. Wow. Jesus wanted to do his Father's will, no matter what it was. And he was focused on that. And he would not be detracted or distracted from it. Something else for us to follow. Our last thought from Matthew 26 kind of flows from that previous thought. But we're going to look at it in just a little bit different way. It should be comforting to us. In fact, all this should be comforting to us. It's a challenge to us, yes, but it's also a comfort to us. That he sets us an example and that we can follow in his steps and we can do it. Yes, we'll fail at times, but we can do it with his help. Here in the Garden of Gethsemane, that's the reading from Matthew 26. We'll start with 36. We see a man who struggled with life at times and needed help to get through those struggles. You ever think about that with Jesus? We usually think he had, to, he had it all wired, right? Had no problem whatsoever with life. The garden tells us different. 
Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane and said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee and began to be grieved and distressed. That's James and John. And he said to them, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. And he went a little beyond them and fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping and said to Peter, So you men could not keep watch with me for one hour? Keep watching and praying that you may enter, not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And he went away again a second time and prayed, saying, My father, if this cannot pass away unless I drink it, your will be done. Again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy, and he left them again and went away and prayed a third time, saying the same thing once more. Luke tells us in Luke 22 that an angel came at this time to help strengthen him. This shows us that Jesus was really human. And he struggled at times. Why does he ask these disciples to watch with him and pray if he didn't need their help? You ever think about it? Even just the idea of companionship and you're with me. And how important that is at times when we're having trouble, we're having problems, and we just want to know that somebody else knows about my problem. Maybe they're there with me. Maybe they've just made a phone call or whatever. They've said, I'm praying for you. How much that really helps, doesn't it? That you are not alone in your trouble. And that's what church is about family of God. So he wanted those three to watch and pray with him. The angel came. And then we see he had a will of his own. I often read that. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And he's talking to his disciples. And I'm thinking, oh, he's talking about his disciples. Did Jesus not become flesh? Yes? Was his flesh weak? Yeah, I think it was. Because he was tempted. Now, he did not sin, praise the Lord. But he was in the flesh. He had his own will. Did you ever think about that? If this, which verse do I want? 39. Let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, which is what he was really wanting at the moment, but what you will, Father. At that moment, he had some different thoughts than his father did about the cross. But he humbled himself. His father 
obviously said, no, this is the way, this is where we're going to do it, and he said, okay, we will. And that's often our problem, isn't it? When the Father shows the clear way, whether it's in the Word or situation or whatever, and we realize this is what God wants me to do, we sometimes still don't do it, do we? We still fight. So Jesus looks like a man who needed God to get through life with all its difficulties and needed help from fellow man as well, and so are we, aren't we? So are we. We need God, we need Christ, we need the Spirit, and we need our fellow man to help us through life. So what did Jesus look like? He looked like us. Didn't he? He looked like us. We could look at more examples. Maybe the next time you read through the Gospels, take a look at Jesus that way. He did become flesh. He did become a man. And he lived this life. He lived it perfectly, but he still had his struggles. Yes, he did. And then, we close out I don't have a scripture for it. When he was on the cross, we've said before, Jesus was not the per first person ever to die by crucifixion at the hands of Romans. They had crucified thousands, if not, I don't know if it be millions, but hundreds of thousands of people. That became their chosen way of execution for those who were Treasonous, murderers, and so forth. The dregs. And we see Jesus, you're standing there in that crowd, watching. They crucify him. He looks like any other man. Except we remember what the centurion said after it was over, that his conduct while he was dying was evidently a lot different. I see Jesus as being totally composed, not screaming and yelling as so many did, as I understand, from the pain. And that's what caused the centurion to say, surely this was the Son of God. Yes, Jesus became a man, but he was the son of God as well. What did he look like? It didn't matter what he looked like. We see what he looked like, like one of us. We always offer an invitation of anyone this morning the need of prayer. We talked about Jesus struggling there in the garden. Maybe you're having a struggle right now and you want for us to pray with you. We'd be happy to do that. If you want to give your life back to Christ, maybe you've wandered away. We can help you with that by his grace. If you want to obey the gospel and follow this Jesus, 
the one who gave his life for all so that we might all live, the one who was willing to, to give up that place in heaven and ever become a man so that we could one day actually be with God. Think about it. What a marvelous thing. The sacrifice. You know, Mike was talking about the sacrifice at the cross, and amen. He did sacrifice himself at the cross. He was the propitiation for our sins, but there was a greater, I won't say it was a greater sacrifice, but there was a great sacrifice made when Jesus left heaven and became a human being. And we'll never know what he gave up to do that. But he did. We can read that in Philippians chapter 2. A great Savior, a great Lord. If you want to obey the gospel, please come while Brother Don leads us.